Listener Production. Punchy, whacked, power, influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> Today's guest is a director and former head of the listed $2.5 billion investor office fund, Min Long. Min's not just an adept businesswoman, she's always been an advocate for a very diverse kind of leadership. She approaches the whole idea of business in a different way. Whenever I hear Min speak, she's looking at it from how it fits into the whole of society, not simply what's good for the bottom line. She's a wonderful advocate and a real role model to so many in all sorts of ways. And she's also such a spokesperson for the fact that business can have a human face. A warm welcome to Women With Clout, Ming. Thanks, Jane, and thanks, Catherine. Now, Ming, you moved to Australia when you were quite young and then you went to Lithgow, which I think mm-hmm. is interesting in itself, which is a small town about two hours from Sydney and a thousand... Cold. And yeah, it's really cold. <laughs> That must have been an incredible culture shock. Absolutely. So I came from Malaysia, so KL, capital city, um, moved to Lithgow, and I don't think I've ever been so cold in my life. We had our house actually um, back onto a field, so you actually had the the wind roaring up the um, the valley. And um, we got there because my father got a job in um, an electrical um, integral energy, actually. So um, he was an electrical engineer and he got a job up there, so we moved up to Lithgow. And at that point in time, I actually thought Australia was quite backward because when you sort of landed in in that little country town, they didn't even have a McDonald's. So, you know, for a young child like myself, that was the standard of development. And there was nothing like that. So there's a couple of sort of stories that I sort of tell in terms of that culture shock. First, when, you know, I was invited to um, to tea and told to bring a plate. (laughs) So I brought a plate, an empty plate, and was completely mortified at, you know, people thinking that, oh, they're going to think I'm a refugee and I'm going to be really poor and I've brought absolutely nothing with me. And the other thing I remember asking um, my parents about was why were Australians so old? Because everybody was walking around with a lot of blonde hair and to me that looked white, Ah. which meant that even the young people look old to me. Strange. (laughs) (laughs) That must have been quite, as you say, quite a culture shock. I wonder what it was like when you went to school and um, we, we was it a culturally diverse place? Because I imagine not. No, not no. not culturally diverse at all. And feeling still like the odd one out, you really, really do stick out when you're in the, in the in a classroom full of very Aussie kids, and you're the only ethnic person they've probably ever seen. Yeah, yeah. Did you have trouble making friends and? Um, I, I, I remember feeling quite um, very self-conscious because I was very clearly different and some of the use of language was different. You know, you would bring the very Asian food to school in terms of your lunches. So feeling like I didn't actually quite fit. Um, you know, the people there were actually really lovely. But I remember there was one instance at school when I was being, you know, sort of in some respect uh, made fun of just because I'm Chinese and so you, they make references to the fact that I should know Kung Fu and all that sort of really, you know, very basic stuff. But then it just reinforces that I'm different and you don't quite belong. Mm-hmm. You moved from... Uh, 
Lithgow. At, uh, what, what sort of age were you when you moved? So we stayed in Lithgow for two years. Two years. Yeah, yeah. That's actually, I, I still love that town. It has, I still have fond memories of it because it was small and you could, you were pretty much forced to integrate pretty quickly into the Australian culture. Mm. Mm. A rapid, um, steep learning curve. <laughs> in the deep end. <laughs> in the deep end. Tell me, at that point, did you have any thoughts about what you wanted to be when you grew up, when you were in primary school? Were you someone who had a very clear idea? No idea. I remember when um, my parents actually saying at the time they thought I was going to become a vet because I, we, I would actually go and find lizards and bring them home. And we had, um, in Malaysia, we had pet chickens. Um, so we would, you know, sort of have dogs and pet chickens. Like we just were around animals all the time. And um, they always thought I'd become a vet. Mm. Didn't quite pan no. out. <laughs> so you say you were very different in your, uh, you know, early years in Lithgow. And do you think you learnt something that you've taken into your business life about what it's like to be the odd one out, the different one, the one that doesn't fit? It's, I find it quite good to remember um, how alienating it can be and how lonely it can make you and the fact that really for a lot of people who will be different within the business community, unless the people within the status quo actually welcome them and make an effort to include them in the conversations. They're probably inevitably trying very hard to say the right thing, do the right thing and fit into the mould just to be accepted, which means that we're actually losing the best part of who they are. And, you know, when you sort of, when I remember those sort of times, it, it's it's important, I think, for people within leadership and the business community to remember where they've come from. And so many times I actually think people have forgotten. Mm. When you went into your early part of your career, so I, I'm interested to know your trajectory and, and how you ended up where you were, um, where did you start out when you presumably finished university? Well, if I can just start on a little bit before that. So all my brothers and sisters are doctors. Um, so I'm uh, actually... Hence the vet. Hence, well, yeah, I suppose you could do that. And they're actually married to either people within the medical fraternity one way or another. So I am actually the black sheep of the family. And I remember sort of at high school, even in, in year 11 and 12, not having an idea about what I wanted to do. I thought, well, my older brother and sister, they're doctors, so I should put that down. I actually did put it down as my preference, but went to... Um, a Sydney University open day and went to the med medical faculty and saw bodies actually laid out where people actually donated themselves to research and science. Oh, cadavers. Cadavers, real life cadavers. So there was actually a head, sorry, I don't know, <laughs> their head. So it was actually cut in half with a full brain, right, attached and somebody having a bit of a poke at it. And I honestly thought, I can't, I can't divorce that human from the fact that that's just the body. And I literally walked straight out of there and changed my preferences. And at that point in time, I was doing economics at school. My mother was an economics um, teacher at school. And I thought, well, that's the next data level. And I thought, I'll do that, right? And that's really how I got into sort of economics law. And even when I finished um, my degree, still really had no idea. Because I think when you're that young, 
you don't have a clue about where life is going to take you. So I actually started working at a smaller second-tier accounting firm because it gave me a really good foundation in terms of working in all sorts of different parts of the finance industry. So in order in business services and tax, you know, I had a law degree and a lot of the um, accounting firms just wanted me to do tax. And I actually couldn't imagine anything worse to be something as to be stuck in tax for the rest of my life. So um, working at that smaller accounting firm really helped give me a foundation just to understand what I like. And from there, I've only really worked for three organisations. So I've actually had a career that's probably not typical of people today. I've only worked for three companies. And have you found any barriers uh, or has it all been easy? I think the barriers, I felt like it came over time. So earlier on when I was a graduate, when you're sort of, you know, head down, bum up, working really hard, I think actually being an ethnic person um, probably helps because the expectation is that and I, I had a very good work ethic, you know, worked really, really hard, um, would sacrifice a lot to make sure I hit deadlines, all that sort of stuff. That bodes really well. But it's only when I started being promoted and started feeling actually a little bit of there's something else that's happening here and I don't know quite what it is. And only really arriving at the understanding of um, the, you know, the, 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 how bias play, plays a role, how stereotypes play a role, how in, a, in a, an organisation when you're at the peak of your career and also the peak within leadership in an organisation, it is most of the time dog eat dog. And people will use whatever it is in their competitive advantage to make sure that they have a leg up over you. So, you know, if in people's minds that, you know, being a woman and having an ethnic background is going to be seen as a negative, well then, you know, for somebody who is also vying for the same leadership positions, to them it's a positive. Mm. You told me once, Ming, and I've never forgotten, in fact, I think I quoted you on it, that you were able to, in different situations, dial up or dial down your ethnicity. So you, you were explaining that you used language differently and the way you related to people. Tell us a little bit about that because it's almost, um, it's, it's using your difference to your advantage as well, isn't it? Yeah, so I became CFO of my company um, in the middle of the global financial crisis. And I actually talk about the fact that it was probably the best time to become CFO because there was no expectations of what people had done in the past, you could actually do it your way because, the, you know, what, what was done before, well, that clearly hadn't worked. And it meant that I could actually be more of, bring more of myself to the organisation. And what became very apparent was when, you know, I was trying really hard to actually raise capital to, to save the company. And yes, you would talk to a lot of the Australian banks, but we would be talking to a lot of the foreign banks as well. And you could tell that, you know, as a foreign bank, trying to understand Australians was really hard because our accent is quite thick. So I would actually deliberately swap to what my colleagues would affectionately then call my Chinglish, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which meant that for a lot of the foreign banks, they looked at me and said, hey, she's like one of us. Mm. And that's when I think you can use bias to your advantage. If they looked at me and thought, okay, here's an Asian woman, 
oh my gosh, she talks like us as well. She's one of us. I actually think they, they trusted me more. And trust is such an important thing as we're learning now with business generally. Trust is incredibly important. So I would actually deliberately, it's almost almost like being a chameleon. It's important to adapt yourself to the needs of the people that you are trying to work with. And I think in leadership, that would be a really good skill for generally people to have because inevitably leadership is all about getting the best out of your employees. And if you can adapt yourself to, to a point where you, you're working with somebody who is very different to you, but you've got a style that makes them feel really comfortable, where they can trust you, when they can, they feel like you care about them, you're trying to get the best out of them. They're more likely to invest in that company and give that extra effort when you need them to. So does that take us back to that little girl in Lithgow Primary School having to learn to adapt to that particular environment and then learning later on that you can swap between and that the real advantage of diversity perhaps is that you've got more strings to your bow than just the, you know, white Aussie private school educated bloke. Absolutely. You've actually got an, what I call the adaptability sort of skill and especially when we're in an environment where there is a lot of disruption and the economy is not sometimes, I think, just because of what's happening overseas, not firing at, at all these sort of levels, that you have to have an, a, an agility within yourself and your style to meet whatever the circumstances are. I think people who have not had that challenge, so I attribute it to people with disability, people from the LGBTI community, women, and, you know, people from cultural, um, culturally diverse backgrounds, they have absolutely had to adapt their style and, and you know, how to work with people who are different to them just to mean that they, they just to, to make sure that they would, would be heard and they would be accepted in terms of their opinion. They, they absolutely have an additional skill where people within the status quo do not have. It's um. It is fascinating, though, isn't it, to see, and, and, and a little bit depressing, uh, when you walk around our university campuses and see the extraordinary uh, ethnic blend there. You know, we have amazing sort of communities that we live in. And then we go into the business world, and you've spoken about this a lot in the work that you do, uh, and the further up the ranks you get, the more white and male uh, yes. those people are. That, what do you say to young women in particular from non-Anglo, uh, perhaps Chinese, Southeast Asian ethnicity groups? What do you say to them about sort of looking at that? Because that must be incredibly off-putting. It's very off-putting, but we need everyone to be up for the fight. And I know it's hard um, and it's not for everyone, which means that inherently already we are missing out on talent that would potentially be actually incredible um, if we actually gave them the opportunity. But um, we need all women to sort of step up. But I think with what we've seen, certainly in the media, it does require some sacrifice for the people who are forging the way. Um, and it means that you have to sort of fight through somehow some of how the media, media portrays you, some of how your colleagues, your own colleagues will look at you in terms of your capability. You have to fight through some of that. But the important thing is to keep in mind that there are so many other women behind us that are really, really wanting us to forge that and break that path. And it allows them to actually 
be successful too. So there are women who and, and people of ethnic backgrounds, it's not just women, but men of ethnic backgrounds wanting that greater diversity and they will stand on our shoulders. When, like you talked about making sacrifices, particularly if you're forging the path, what was your worst moment? Is there ever a time when you thought, oh, I'm just walking away from this, I'm not doing this anymore and unless oh, that? Multiple times. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, multiple times through the financial crisis. I was CEO of, CEO of the listed fund um, that, Catherine, you were talking about when we were going through a lot of M&A and that was absolutely out in the public arena. Um, mergers and acquisitions. <laughs> and it always sounds really sexy, but it never is when you're actually working through it. And it really does feel like in, in those moments you are in a crucible and it is incredibly lonely. You don't necessarily have people around you that you can talk to. Um, my husband had to sacrifice his career. Um, so he is a stay-at-home dad to look after the kids, as, you know, because I was in a in a fairly intense sort of um, um, situation in, in multiple times in my career. So there are sacrifices. I don't get to watch them. I never got to see my kids, you know, walk for the first time. But it is actually worth the sacrifice because I, I remember why I am doing everything I'm doing. I remember the values I have at those times. And it's important, I think, for future leaders to actually see people who will make the right decisions despite conflicts of interest, Um despite being put in situations where it would have been easier to serve myself to actually stand up and say, no, 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 I am continually going to do the right thing because I want to look at myself in the mirror. I want to have a, a good night's sleep every night and know that I've done the right thing. Is that what drives you? Absolutely drives me. Yeah, I think about my purpose. I'm here to now make sure that the world is a better place for the next generation. So a lot of the things that I champion it's because, you know, you will have circumstances like when I watched um, Hillary Clinton lose the election and feeling absolute despair that night and, you know, saying to my daughter, I don't know why, you know, I keep on trying. And then she's saying to me, mum, if you don't do this, what hope is there for me? And, you know, that stays with me. It stays with me in terms of talking about climate change and thinking about intergenerational equity, thinking about, you know, there are so many older women who are homeless that we, we're sort of hearing about. has to drive you. I want to make sure my life is here for more than just myself. There is a legacy to leave behind. I don't want to um, go from the highbrow to the very low, but I did want to ask you because that that point you made about your colleagues uh, saying that you were speaking Chinglish, um, talk to us a little bit about tactics in offices because racism and sexism, oh, everyone says they're not. Everyone says I'm not biased, I'm fair. Yeah, yeah that's right. I don't see race. I don't see it. Oh, gender. It's not, yeah. <laughs> How do you deal with that? Because one of the things I have noticed with you is I think you're very adept with humour. And I don't underrate that because I think in Australia in particular, that can be really handy. Any examples of times you've just been able to kind of undercut some of that using a bit of humour? Can I just say, I would be the last person to say I actually have a sense of humour. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it is, uh, I think, in, in any organisation, when you're working with your colleagues or, or managing up, if I can put it that way, it's really important for them to actually like you. So I think that ability to adapt and be agile in terms of your style to meet their expectations a little bit. And I talk about the fact that um, when you're trying to get your voice heard around the table, when it's just all men around the table, it is really hard. And a lot of them will steal your ideas and a lot of them will, will, will talk over you and and basically not listen to you. So, you know, inevitably you have circumstances I talk about where I tried to go through the front door and it slammed shut. Okay, right, and that, that's not going to work. I'm going to try that side door and try that side door. And you keep on going until you actually find the door that's going to get that right outcome. Because in the end, a lot of the times when you're you're making suggestions to an executive team, you know, you actually care really passionately about it and it's it's important that they listen to you. So, you know, I, I just kept on going and I didn't sort of give up because I knew what I was trying to achieve. Now, I think humour is really important given this, the environment we're in. So Australians love, you know, if you, if you have that, that, you know, that being humorous gene, it's actually a massive plus in, in business. And you learn that over time. The other thing that's really important um, for a lot of the people within business and leadership is sport. I mean, Australians are obsessed with sport. I'm not, you know. Me neither. I, I, <laughs> I only watch the sports that my husband watches. And so inevitably I just make sure that I'd word up on the sports that my colleagues have an interest in so I could at least have a conversation because the more they think you're like them, the more they're willing to accept and listen to you. So it's just making sure you, you're adapting your style to them. But how I managed down to the people with my team was very, very different. Um, you know, I made sure that, you know, within the teams I have that if there were really quiet people in the team, I would ask them for their opinions first. So I would make sure that they felt like I actually wanted their opinion, even though they're really quiet, because inevitably they're really deep thinkers, you know, they may not voice what their, their opinions are, but I wanted to hear them. So how I managed down very, very different. Mm. Do you have um, women that you rely on uh, for your sort of, I guess, your uh, revival, your uh, affirmation in what you're doing? Yeah. For sucker, so I yeah. sometimes think. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, when I was going through a lot of the tough times at, at the last place I worked, it was inevitably the women who would reach out that would send me a text thinking of you, do you need anything? It was actually really funny. I didn't get that from the guys and that was, that was actually eye-opening in that instance. And it means that as women, we actually need to support so many of the women, certainly in the executive life or, or in leadership positions generally, um, to make sure that they are supported when they're going through really tough times because they're not necessarily going to get that. So I do have a posse of women who keep an eye out for me. Um, and it's actually interesting now that I've actually left executive life, I've realised that a lot of my networks, just because it was just networks that I actually you know, found when I was working, were more um, Anglo-Saxon people. And it's only now that I've had time to actually reach out to the ethnic community, realising that actually my networks are not ethnically diverse as it should be, even for an ethnically diverse woman. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So which brings us to the question, you know, Australia is often described as a successful example of multiculturalism. So is it? 
a successful multicultural society? I mean, it's all relative, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, relative True. to a lot of the countries around the world, I think it is really successful. I actually have so much hope and aspiration for this country. I do think it's glass half full because the, that if we can harness that um, cultural diversity, it really does mean that Australia can leap ahead of the rest of the world, which I actually see going backwards in so many respects, right? So if we can actually do that, that would mean that we are really then going to harness all of that talent. Now, it's not actually in the, um, the power for, of that ethnic community to assimilate. And the simulation, I think of, it's like Star Trek and the Borg. It's almost like you're trying to wipe out their difference and wipe out their um, their cultural identity. I want people to keep a lot of that because that's going to be the piece that's valuable. I don't want people just to tolerate people of that different ethnic background because tolerate means... I'm gritting my teeth and, yes, you're an, you're an evil person, but you're here so I can't get rid of you. I want people to value and respect it. And it means it's not for the ethnic community to do this. It's actually for the non-ethnic. It's actually for the Anglo-Saxon community in Australia to reach out because it is within your power to do that. Which is what happened to you when you were a little girl in Lithgow. You said it was... They who reached out to you, some yes. teased you, yes. but basically the Lithgow community embraced you and your family. That's right. That's right. So we can do so much as a nation if we actually make sure that we're reaching out to people who are different from us. And I, I can see that, you know, for some people who are, who are different, it may scare you, but there are so many things that actually make us human and makers have common interests. You know, the fact that we love our families, well, that I think you'll find that a universal truth. Um, you know, you want to be accepted and you want to belong. That's a universal truth. There are so many things that actually bind us and where we have in common. And I think if we actually remembered those things first, before we look for those differences that may make you a little bit hesitant, um, it could go a long way. Ming, who, who are your role models? Who do you look up to? Oh, my gosh. I mean, my um, I talk about my husband, you know, the fact that he sacrificed his, his career. And for him to do that when he did, when it was not common for men to stay at home, and, and you know, if you ever met him, he is the most patient and sort of forgiving person Um and you know, good he qualities had when you're looking qualities. after children. <laughs> Very. Um, but he had to, and I talk about this. He had to run the gauntlet of the stay-at-home mums who did not welcome him. Yeah, I've heard this many times before. It's yeah. a shame, isn't it? It's an absolute Understandable. shame. Understandable. It's stereotyping. Yeah. It's stereotyping. But he had to hold his own, and it got to a point where he said to me, "You know, I actually don't give a stuff of what they think." But you get pushed to that point um, and I would have loved for him to be more accepted um, um, for what, you know, for what sort of happened to him. And it got to a point where he he actually would pick up our kids, you know, 10 to 15 minutes later because he didn't want to face up to these women who would look down on him. I find that really sad. But for somebody like him to fight against society's stereotype of what a man is takes an enormous amount of courage and resistance and persistence, you know, all the things we talk about um, when, we, when we talk about women a lot of the times. 
So there are women, I think, within my network who have supported me and helped me hold on to my values because so many times when there was temptation to do the opposite, and it is absolutely a temptation, so many times people will throw money at you and tempt you to do um, what you know is probably morally wrong. Um, people holding my hand and saying, no, 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 you need to keep on going and doing the right thing because you're playing the long game. And I look at people like um, Michelle Obama and I think, oh my God, like look at how much you had to fight through being a woman of colour in in the White House. I look at, um, there's now a deputy prime minister in Malaysia, I've been watching sort of the Malaysian elections and being absolutely astounded what's happened. Um, there's a first female deputy prime minister, the wife of Anwar, who was in, in prison, but she was a doctor. And, you know, when he was in prison, she held the family together. She had to, you know, basically lead the opposition through years of, you know, what the, the mainstream government was doing. And, you know, she's done it quietly with just that steel of, I think, armour that I see in her, but she's so softly spoken. Um, and I see her and I think, you know, inevitably, you know, her husband, you know, the talk is that he, you know, he'll become prime minister at some point. And I hope she stays in politics because, you know, probably the, the stereotype is that, well, your your husband's now in, in, in leadership in parliament, so you'll step back. But, She's been the stronger person. I, I, I'm amazed at these women that are, you know, in our everyday lives and it doesn't just have to be in leadership, but, you know, the mum who is at stay at home that has to sacrifice a lot, you know, look at the, both of you and I look at your careers and how much you've had to sacrifice for the younger women like us that are coming through. Um, you're all role models. And I have no doubt that your daughter probably thinks the same thing about you, but maybe doesn't tell you. Yeah. She will never tell me. (laughs) (laughs) And depending on how old she is, she may not know she thinks it about you right at this particular moment if she's a teenager. But in about 10 years later, she finally says, you know what? I'm really glad you did the things you did. Yeah, I'm sure well, she will. What's interesting about her is that you do all these um, personalities to the tests at school and she's scored really highly on making sure that her career has a purpose, a greater purpose. So, you know, I'm feeling like <laughs> mummy has had some influence here. <laughs> Chip off the old block. Yeah, good on you. I'm thinking. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Catherine. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and Catherine Fox. Producer Lib Crown. Theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. Listener.